0: Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Let's Go Hockey Podcast. Today's interview is with former NHL player Steve Dubinsky. I'm Pete Cameron of Elevated Hockey. And with me as usual, Andy
1: Heath of Project Hockey. And this interview was special because anytime you can talk to someone who played in the National Hockey League, it's it's awesome and definitely worth a listen. And for me growing up, having a ton of injuries in our game, it was good to, to listen to someone who, who spoke on that and and talked about that and his different injuries and how he was able to bounce back and different things like that so i'm excited for that part of the interview what about you coach
0: yeah so i, I was pretty fired up before this interview and i was fired up afterwards too because i'm a big Blackhawks fan I grew up playing in chicago and and steve was on the blackhawks when i was a kid in the 90s so for me that was pretty cool talking to a guy that i'd seen play back when i was uh, i think i was in high school when he was playing uh, for the Hawks. So that that alone was really cool for me personally, but my, you know, I, I think that he touched on a lot of coaching details and player development details. And I think that, you know, a guy who's played at the highest level, he's got kids that are, they're coming up the ranks right now. The player development is obviously an important piece. And then he's working in his AAA system, uh, showcase tournaments. He's working within the game right now. And so he's, I thought, you know, on a lot of different levels, he has some good insights into uh, coaching development and how that relays down to the details of player development. So, um, yeah, I think I think with that, Danny, what do, you, what do you say, man? What do you say? I mean, make sure you hit the like and subscribe button. Leave us a five-star
1: rating because that is what allows us to keep continuing to do this and pump out amazing content. So hit that um, and let's dig into this one, Coach. What do you think? I think let's
2: go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. This interview was brought to you by HockeyWolf.com. Check out hockeywolf.com for all things hockey. They are a fantastic brick-and-mortar and online retailer. They've got everything you need from skates and sticks to shower slips and hoodies. And for all of you coaches and organizational leaders out there, don't forget to check out Hockey Wolf's team sales option on their website. Next time your team needs helmets or gloves, sticks, skates, jerseys, Go to hockeywolf.com, get everything that you need so that your guys and girls are ready to hit the ice. Go support Hockey Wolf because they support us. That's H-O-C-K-E-Y-W-O-L-F.com.
0: Originally from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, he played his college hockey at Clarkson University, including his captain, uh, was captain his senior year in 1993. He was a 1990 NHL entry draft pick. And started his his pro career with the Indianapolis Ice of the IHL before being called up to the Chicago Blackhawks and playing with them from 1993 to 97. He played his first full NHL season, complete with 82 games for the Blackhawks in the 97-98 season. And his career involved stops playing for the Blackhawks, Calgary Flames, Nashville Predators, and St. Louis Blues. Today, Steve's an active member of the Chicago hockey community, working with camps and organizations to help grow the game. Most notably, he works for the Super Series AAA uh, Tournament Series that showcases top young players and teams all around North America. In addition, Steve's also involved with one of our, our great sponsors, Sticks. He's an ambassador for the Sticks brand and uses the products. Steve Dubinsky, welcome to the Let's Go Hockey podcast. How's it going today?
3: Good. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Um, it's great to great to have you on. We appreciate the time,
1: uh, for sure. Um, kind of how we like to start things out is just we got the cliff note version, obviously, from camera there, just on your stops. And and looks like, I mean, you play in the NHL, which is always just crazy to me being someone who loves hockey. And, you know, I never made it that far. But I, I love to hear just your story. And if you could dive a little bit deeper on, you know, your your path and your your hockey journey.
3: Yeah, well, it's not your. It's definitely not your typical journey. So I was. Uh, I grew up in Montreal, as you mentioned. Uh, real late bloomer physically, and uh, I ended up walking on at Clarkson as a 19-year-old. Uh, no scholarship. The coaches just said, "Hey, you know, we're kind of in a transition period. We it's my second year. I think it was Mark Morris's." second year at the school. And he basically said, listen, I have a lot of spots open. Uh, He didn't really love the recruiting class or the players that were there per se. When he got there and he said, listen, we don't have any money for you, but you're more than willing to come on, try out for the team and, you know, no promises. And, uh, you know, basically went into the school, you know, uh, got into the school, but it was really evident early that I think I was going to be able to play on the team. And that first year I made the team, played in every game. And then slowly over the next, you know, at the end of the year, that year I was drafted by Chicago in the 11th round, 226th overall. And from then on, I just, my career kind of, you know, was on an upward trajectory and three years later signed with the Blackhawks and made the team out of my first camp uh, before getting sent down a couple games in. But, you know, not exactly the uh, prototypical path for an NHL player.
0: No, that's pretty amazing. I, I actually didn't know that you walked on. That's uh I love hearing that story at, at Clarkson. I mean what a great inspiration for players. Walking on and then and ending your career as a draft pick and a and a captain of a program. I mean, that's uh that's uh like a dream for so many players out there. Let me jump into Steve, if you don't mind. Let's jump like flash forward to your in your pro career. I mean, you started your pro career in the uh in the early nineties. Uh, the game, obviously, back then was a little bit different than it is today. There's um, we can kind of jump into that a little bit. But, you know, a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is trying to extend benefit to the, the coaches and players that are listening for their own personal development. So with that in mind, uh, what, what are the major differences you see in some of the training and preparation um, from your time in the pros in the 90s versus kind of how the game is, is nowadays?
3: Well, I would say the biggest thing is I think that the players now, they really value individual skill development. And any time that you, you, know, you see the PowerEdge Pro and you see these guys, basically as soon as the season ends, some of these guys are the next day training again. And I think to me that was, you know, looking back, if someone had said to me when I was playing in the, American, in the International League or even the NHL and in the summertime, I could become a better player. I would have looked at them like they had two heads. So I think that to me is where I think the biggest change is. I think that people from from all age groups, whether it's a six-year-old or someone making, you know, $14 million like Connor McDavid, the the, the constant willingness to improve their skill sets is probably the biggest change. You know, there's still a focus on strength and conditioning. But I think that the skill side of the game has gotten to the point where that's that's a priority for players. And you know, my summers were spent an hour a day on the the bike or the elliptical and another hour of weight training. And I remember some of the some of the things that I had to do when I came back to school, they were insane. It was like a thousand dollar a thousand thousand pounds of leg press or you were in the breakfast club and it just nowadays the thing has changed so much to where you know, pro athletes are using. You're doing Pilates. They're 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 doing a, they're doing yoga. It's a lot different in a lot of ways. But I think the skill side is the biggest change.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. Like the difference, like some guys are doing yoga and they're doing more like just body maintenance and taking care of it. And I know that you had some injuries as you played the game. And um, kind of on a personal level, for me, I had to stop playing for for different injuries. And I mean, you name it. I broke it. Blah blah blah. And, but um, kind of looking at your career and, and when you had different injuries um, how did you how did you deal with that and and what was your mindset there and um, do you see a big difference in how like if you had injuries like because I know like shoulders are handled a little bit differently that nowadays than they used to be and so I'm wondering uh, how just how you dealt with it your mindset there and and what you see changing for the better oh
3: uh, well I think you know the, my my injuries. Were kind of condensed, so I, I had my first year in Calgary. I had uh, I hurt my shoulder, and I knew I had torn my labrum. But I played with that from probably like November, December, all the way till the end of the year with a brace. It would pop out every once in a while, but as soon as that season was over, we didn't end up making the playoffs. I had surgery, so I rehabbed all summer. Came back to camp in September played the first three months, and then tore my ACL in December. So I had two, you know, major injuries in a short period of time. And, um, you know, I guess one of the things is when you're getting paid, you know, it it eases the burden um, that you know you're going to be able to come back from an injury and be able to play. My knee injury, I actually was a free agent at the end of that year. Calgary did not re-sign me. I ended up re-signing with the Blackhawks on a two-way contract after being on a one way contract. So that was, you know, that was a little bit of a, of a kick in the teeth. The fact that I wasn't able to maintain my one way contract um, and had to go back to the minors and kind of work my way up. So, you know, in terms of that, there hasn't, there hasn't been that much change in terms of, you know, whether the the surgery itself is a little different. Now it's done uh, arthroscopically. Uh, My, my middle son who actually plays college at RPI, he's had a, a number of shoulder surgeries for a young player. He's had both of his shoulders, He's had two shoulder surgeries on his right arm and one on his left, and you know, for me, it's been a it's been a tough grind just having gone seeing him go through that. But at the end of the day, the the mental toughness that I had to endure, or any player, or that he's had to endure the last you know four or five years as a young player, sometimes weighs on you. But I think the key to that is the the ones that bounce back from that and can be better players truly are the ones that are going to succeed, and not only in hockey just any aspect of life. I think the resiliency of dealing with the fact that, you know, you're not able to play and your teammates are having success and, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, but I think that as a player today, you know, when you're making, you know, 4 to $5 million and you hurt yourself, I don't know how much, um, you know, the, the teams are very cautious and the players are very cautious with returning to play because there's so much at stake and concussions is one, you know, my career ended on a concussion. So I can, I can touch on that a little bit, that that's really an injury that, that nobody knows what's going on. Like, and it's a hard injury because nobody, nobody sees any scars. Nobody knows the timetable. And I think Mm -hmm. that that that's an injury that has become predominant. And I just think that it's, it's so different. Everybody has different symptoms. Everyone has different timetable. Some people could get knocked out and be back in a week. Some people right. could be, you know, like in my case, I got to stick to the side of the head inadvertently during a game, and my career ended because I just couldn't get back to that level and i couldn't I didn't feel comfortable jumping back into playing when there was an unknown of my one hit away from not remembering my kids' names. And I think that's a big big uh you know thing that a lot of players, and when you're making that much money today you know, it's really hard. You've got people questioning your, your integrity. And, you know, is this guy really want to be a hockey player? And, you know, a broken arm, a leg an ACL a shoulder, there's a timetable. So it sometimes it's more difficult for others. I think now, you know, there's a lot of players who individually have mental coaches and teams have mental coaches. And I think, you know, I think, I think Calgary, uh, I think it's, uh Chris McGratton maybe. I can't remember his first name, but he was a fighter in the NHL. Yep. And he you know, he's hired by the flames as a I think he's a mental coach. I think he's he's there as someone for the guys to talk to and you know, go through time people go through different phases in their lives and so having someone like that is a is I think is a big change. You know, we didn't have that. We had you know, I had some great coaches over the course of the years, uh, you know, Barry Trotch, Joel Quenville you know, I played for Brian Sutter, Daryl Sutter. I mean, you know, your wide array of, of coaches that all had different mindsets and all treated players differently. And, yeah. you know, that's something we can definitely touch on. As a as a youth coach, I've been a coach a lot of years, and I think the best coaches are the ones that really can relate to each kid individually rather than it being, you know, some of the whole group. And I think that's a downfall of some coaches is – they expect every player to play the same way. And that's not the case.
1: Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you there. Um, Just how big uh, of an impact coaches can have. And obviously you just named a few that you got to play for. Uh, Do you you want to talk about those coaches a little bit and just how they impacted you as a player? Um, Not only when you're going through injuries, but just, I mean, when you're playing the game and and even if there were some when you were in youth hockey um, that kind of impacted you in a, in a positive way or or however you want to talk about it but if you can dive a little bit deeper into some of these coaches that you've you've had the privilege to play for.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the funny thing is is when I really look back, let's say at my youth, my youth hockey, I I really can't pinpoint let's say one coach who really had an impact. You know, the, the thing that I always used to tell people was that the one downfall and I, the game has changed a ton and it's not even a downfall but the one thing that has definitely changed in youth hockey. Is I literally went to college, and that was probably the f- first time that I really was ever taught how to play the game of hockey. And I really feel that that was part of my development. Was I went somewhere, learned how to play the game. The you know with systems and my 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 trajectory as a player. You know, from a walk-on to an 11th round pick to playing in the NHL is, you know, there's a reason for it. And I, 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 it's not a criticism of my coaches I had as a youth, but I just think the game has changed. Where when I did retire and I'm coaching might hockey in Chicago, I'm teaching power play and I'm teaching breakouts and forecheck and and I didn't learn any of that till I was 18 years old and. I think that's definitely something that I'm sure not everybody had that. I had some great coaches. I had good people. I, you know, I played like Bantam sea hockey. So how much, how much are these guys going to really teach me at 13, 14 years old? So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily their fault, but realistically at the end of the day, the coaches, when I got to Clarkson was Mark Morris, you know, real hard nose, not a great X as an O coach, but a really good motivator. Uh, we had a good team. We ended up having a bunch of NHL players on our team. And just, you know, post that I had Daryl Sutter was my first coach in the NHL with Chicago and his brother Dwayne was my coach in Indy. Two very, very similar coaches, high expectations. You know, you're not going to get much out of them, but you know, you knew what they expected you to do as a player. Um, we then went into, my next coach was, with Chicago was Craig Hartsburg, who ended up being great for me because he really just, I did my job. He he dressed me for 82 games and, you know, really was a, you know, more of a player's coach. That's what I would say Hartsey was. Uh, Hartsey got fired. They brought in uh, Alpo Suhonen, who was a European coach, and realistically Mike Smith was a GM at the time. And I look back going, this guy was way ahead of his time. I mean, we used to do drills in practice that the kids are doing now. So you're talking 1997, 98 season, I think, potentially. Uh, Or maybe 98, 99, I can't remember. But regardless, no, it was 97, 98, because I got traded in 98 to Calgary. So it was just a different, you know, he didn't say much, quiet, focused on skills. It really helped players like Steve Sullivan, who was a smaller skilled player. And it really didn't bode well for at the time. And we had you know, legitimate guy, you know, Probert, you know, who passed away, obviously, but I mean, we had like Ryan Vandenbush and Cam Russell, and you know, we had so many tough guys that it really didn't, it wasn't a great system for that group. So then, then they hired Dirk Graham, who was the captain of the team when I was playing, who very, very similar type mindset to the Sutter brothers, high expectations, you know, hard nose, in your face hockey. We had a really tough, tough team. Uh, I ended up getting traded to Calgary in October of 98 and Brian Sutter was the coach there. So I got to play for another Sutter who, you know, once again, same thing, high expectation, you know, not afraid to drop an F bomb every other word. And, but you know, he was, he need he was very respected. We had young players like Jerome McGinley who ended up being, you know, I don't know if he's in the hall of fame yet or he's definitely heading there. Um, You know, just Theo Fleury was there at the time. And we just had a very, but we also had a very young group. And we didn't have a lot of success as a team. But we had a lot of really good players who were, you know, kind of on the cusp of, you know, Derek Morris ended up being, you know, really, really great player. So uh, then at the end, so then I got injured uh, and then ended up going back to Chicago. And I'm trying to think who the coach was. Oh, you know what? Guess what? It was Brian Sutter. So Brian Sutter got fired from Calgary. He ended up getting hired in Chicago. So once again, very similar coach. I knew his systems. I knew what his expectations were that year. I ended up getting traded to Nashville and Barry Trotz was the coach. So I played the last 20, 27 games in Nashville and I played with, with guys on the top six. I was a top six forward in Nashville I scored seven goals and I believe 27 games. That was more than I'd probably scored in my entire career total. Just because I, you know, I was given a chance to play with some, some more skilled players. And I think that's something we can touch on as well after. So yeah. at the end of the year, uh, Nashville offered me uh, a two-way contract. St. Louis offered me a one-way contract. I couldn't pass it up. I signed with St. Louis. We moved to St. Louis. Uh, in training camp, they let me know that they're sending me down to Worcester which was a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a kick in the teeth. Went down there, played hard, got called up to St. Louis uh, Halloween weekend. Was there for the next 26 games or something like that. I can't remember exactly how many games I played, but then I got injured. um, And that was the end of it from a a hockey playing perspective. But touching on the coaches, you know, Barry Trotz and Joel Quenville, very similar, very similar coaches, you know they they don't say a lot. They're they expected a lot from their. Le- they had a leadership group that they just leaned on, and uh, you know that was kind of the way that I I left the game with two of the better coaches, even in today's game. And I, I really really, you know, I used to laugh and say, listen, I'd be marked down for like a minute twenty seven of ice time, my beginning of my career in Chicago. And not you know there was there was a definite difference between a first top six and a bottom six. And if you weren't in the top six, you know, sometimes you played two to five minutes a game. But the one thing that I took it from, I really learned from these coaches that, you know, that you can't treat every player the same way. You have to understand, you know, you can't, ex- you, you, if you need a goal, you're maybe not relying on, on a fourth line player, but if you need a penalty kill, block a shot, win a face off, So I, le- I really learned that. I really learned how to be a coach. From a lot of different, like some really really good people, and I played with some great players too. But from a coaching perspective, I've really, I really was able to uh, to learn a ton as a player.
0: So let's let's dive into that for a second, Steve. Because you, I mean, you you mentioned a lot of very uh, you know well known coaches there. That and in, in, like you said, you had takeaways from all those. And earlier, you 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 made the the mention that. You, you didn't really learn how to play hockey until you you started playing in college. So let's combine those two thoughts. And and what are you doing with the players you're coaching now to make sure that one that they do know how to play hockey, and then two, what are you know what what are some of the takeaways from those coaches that you listed that you you've taken and added into your coaching game right now?
3: Well, I mean, I think the, I think the biggest thing nowadays is I just think everything's so advanced. And like I said when I when I retired things that I was learning at 18, I was teaching eight-year-olds. And I think that that as a coach, like, I didn't, I didn't go too fast. Like, if we couldn't pass the puck well, we worked on passing. You know, you can't – there's a lot of coaches out there who go and run a power play practice, and their kids can't even make a six-foot pass. So fortunately, I had some good players that I was able to, you know, teach and be able to push them just like anything else. You know, if you have a student that – if you have a, a smart kid, you're not keeping them in in a remedial class. You're moving them to AP classes. And that's the way I really approached hockey was don't be afraid to challenge these kids. And, you know, if they can't do it, you take a step back. But if they can, just keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. And, you know, I've been lucky to be surrounded by some really, really great players during my coaching career. And I think that allows – For creativity, and I think it allows for coaches to, you know, develop some really, really good players. That I I always say this that if a player, if a young player is taught the right way to play the game at a young age, that's going to carry them a long way because you cannot teach hockey IQ past a certain age group, in my opinion. I don't care what anybody says, you just can't. And some of the players that I have coached um, have really gone on to be great players because the coaches say, wow, whoever coached those, those kids really knew what they were doing. And I say this all the time to any team, especially the last two years coaching with the Florida Lions team that my son Aiden played on over and over again. I say to them all the time, I'm only here for one or two years, but what I want is I want the coach that gets you next to be able to say, man, whoever coached that kid was a great hockey coach.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's an aspiration that any youth coach should have if they start looking at the bigger picture. It's not about them, it's about the players and setting them up for success after they're not on your roster. And that that brings me to to a question as you were as you were just speaking. I was thinking, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on uh at the youth level today? Do you think there's too much structure in uh some of the gameplay? at the youth levels as far as like, I mean, you're talking about building hockey IQ and creativity and and not learning the game on the other side of that pendulum. Do you think that there's a lot of coaches that are, are coaching, like over coaching the game to the point where the players are, are, are being locked out of some of that creativity. I mean, that's a big push for USA hockey. So like, you know, not have as rigid of, uh, uh of systems at the younger ages.
3: Yeah. I think there's a fine line. I mean, I, I don't think that, I think, you know, if you keep it, You know, at the young age levels, there's a power play that might, you know, you might just have an overload or you might just two on one the puck just because you have one extra guy. So I agree with you. I think sometimes, you know, people try and be a little too, you know, creative with what they're teaching. But with that being said, I've always been a firm believer that if you teach players to play the game kind of at the next level, of what it's going to be, I think that really improves them. I've, I've always been, I've always thought that you know if you pass the puck hard, if you finish your checks, if you angle the, if you angle a neutral zone, like things, things that are that really separate high IQ players. And if you teach players at young age levels how to do it and why you're doing it, like like a first four checker, there's a lot of first four checkers that go in and think they need to separate the the the, the man from the puck. No, no, no. The F one's job. Is to make it uncomfortable so the D makes a pass to where he doesn't want to go to, and I think those like those are just philosophies that I've always had. That, and you know what, it's not. A, I think there's a lot of great volunteer hockey coaches, but there's the word volunteer. Like, there's a big difference between a dad that's a coach and a coach that's a dad, and I think that sometimes gets lost in a lot. You know, in hockey because you know, to me, I've often I've always said this: if you have a chance for your kid to play. For any player who played pro hockey, you jump at it because they know more than anybody, whether it's one NHL game, zero NHL games, a thousand American League games, a thousand East Coast League games, Central League, you know, Southern Pro, Sunshine, whatever it is, anybody that plays pro hockey, to me, has a skill set and a knowledge that other people don't.
1: I would agree with that. It's like, it's tough to know it unless you're in it. And something that you kind of touched on briefly, just how you were traded, um, in the NHL, what was your mindset when, when that happened? Like when you said, hey, you just got traded, what was kind of going, going through your mind at that time and how did you handle that?
3: You know what? I was actually happy because I wasn't dressing in Chicago. So it was a situation where I was looking for an opportunity. Uh, Dirk Graham was the coach they had brought in legitimately the toughest, they probably, they definitely had the toughest team in the league. I mean, you're talking six to eight legitimate heavyweight fighters of which I was, I was not a fighter. I was a physical player, but just not a fighter. And it didn't fit. I didn't fit in with the mentality that the group had. So for me, it was a great situation. I went somewhere where I was going to play. And, um, you know, the second time was when I got traded from Chicago to Nashville it was a situation where I was in the minors. And I just, in order to get a chance to play, I had to go play in the minors with Nashville's team in Milwaukee. But I succeeded and I got called up and had, you know, a great, you know, last third of the season there. So everybody has different. I mean, there are most of the time, if you look at, especially in today's, you know, contract world and cap, there's not a ton of trades anymore. You've got guys locked up for six to eight years at 56. 50 60 million dollars there's not a lot of it the game has changed in that sense most of the time guys are traded when they want to get out
1: yeah yeah I would say that and um I had my coach growing up Jimmy Johnson who played at Duluth and played the NHL for a while um I got traded in the USHL from Tri-City to to Des Moines and I didn't take it very well and then he called me he's like Heater, you got you have 20 new friends Like if you think about it, like 20 new teammates, 20 new contacts in the hockey world and with the hockey world, the way it is, like I didn't know it at the time, but now some of those guys that I got traded to, it's like, okay, now you, I mean, you have all these new friends and these new bonds. And so for me, I I think that's, that's huge. And like, I mean, nobody likes to get traded, but in your situation, it sounded like it worked out and it it also allowed you to play with um, a ton of unbelievable hockey players. Like, just going through your hockey DB like Chris Chelios, Theo Fleury, Keith Kachak, Doug Waite, like these guys aren't your uh, average hockey players. And so if you want to maybe pick one or two of them and um, not necessarily give us like a funny story, but more in the lines of like what they did that made them who they are or what you thought was different between, you know, Theo Fleury and someone who wasn't uh, obviously at his level.
3: Uh, I mean, I think that the, I think the biggest thing that I would say was just I think the preparation that these guys had, and the like a guy like Chris Jelios who you know just he was a great leader, he knew his he knew it you know he wasn't the most skilled player, but man, could he compete and nobody nobody fought harder than that guy, he fought for his teammates he you know he was my first captain, so I was able to, to really experience that and then at the end my last year you know, the captain of the blues was Dougie Wade, who, you know, still to the day we stay in touch. I mean, he's just solid person, you know, looked after everybody in the room. I mean, there, you know, hockey is one of those sports where everybody really cares about everybody in the room. There wasn't, there's not this individualistic, you know, mindset. And I really think that, you know, over the course of the years, I mean, Jeremy Roenick, Tony Amante, I mean, my team. Some of the teams. Some of the players I played with. You know, in St. Louis, Kachuk, Wait, Chris Pronger, Al McInnes. I mean, I. It doesn't get much better than that. I was really fortunate to play with some, some really quality players. And you know, on the, the nice, the, the 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 unfortunate part about my injury in St. Louis, was really the fact that I was, I finally found. Like a, a comfortable role. I was turning thirty-three, which is crazy because now you're basically retired from hockey at thirty-three. But um, you know, I'd found a role. I was a third fourth line center, first penalty killing unit, playing fourteen minutes a game on a team where the coach they didn't he didn't Joel didn't care if I scored a single goal the entire year. He just he just put me out when I, he knew what I could bring to the table, you know. Some for you know, unfortunately, like I said, I was at thirty three. Maybe maybe it was based on the amount of games I'd played, the maturity level. Like I look back, saying like, I, my best year of pro hockey was when in Indianapolis. I think it was ninety six, ninety seven. I was down there for most of the year, and I scored thirty five goals in the minors. And it was just an ability to to have confidence to go to the next level and do the same thing. And I think that every player is different. You know, everybody talks about, you know, there's always guys talking about you need to dominate a level before you move up to the next one. And, you know, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I don't know if I agree with that 100%. And, you know, maybe my ability to get the opportunity, I was 33 years old, to really fit into a role where literally my, my thought process was if I hadn't gotten injured, I might've gotten three more years with the blues and I would have been a third, fourth line penalty killing forward, win face offs and maybe won a Stanley cup. You know what I mean? There's a lot of, a lot of things. So it it could have something to do with the fact that I was a late bloomer and maybe I just needed some time to develop. I don't know, but I agree with that. It's every career is different. I mean, some guys nowadays you got so much skill. I mean, you know, you talk about Keith Kachuk's boys. I mean, just great players, you know, leaders. I mean, they definitely, they don't fall far from the tree in that, in that sense. Cause they, even though they're a little bit different than Keith, they still play with that same, you know, attitude and skill sets. And, you know, it's funny how the, some of the kids really, really play like their dads did. So
0: you caught, you sparked my interest on in one of the things you said is, um, you know, I'd love, I grew up in Chicago I'm a Blackhawks fan. Um, Chelios was like, I played D in a team growing up you know, in the suburbs of Chicago, and Chelios was my guy. Like, he was my favorite player growing up. Um, what, so I'm going to kind of go off script here and ask you, like, what, what's a takeaway from Chelios that, maybe, that you would give to like, a player you're coaching now? Um your experience being able to play with such a legendary defenseman the legendary captain, and you mentioned some preparation and, and the way he battles and competes but what what's a pull, a pull from Chelios uh, that you would extend to your your players or that you're coaching
3: i mean i i think the i think the biggest takeaway from chris was like you know he was five ten hundred and seventy five pounds hundred and eighty maybe on a you know maybe at the beginning of the season, but i mean here's a guy who literally could play the entire game. I mean, I saw something the other day. I started following this. uh, I don't know if you follow it. It's his Vintage Hawks account on Twitter. And, like, they showed him fighting Chris Pronger because Pronger had slashed uh, a kid in the back of the legs. And at 44 years old, he played an average of, like, 18 minutes a game in Detroit or something. And, you know, he he was known for riding the bike in the sauna. To keep yeah. his to keep his fitness up and um he a lot of the stuff people don't even believe people don't want it they they have like what do you mean he' was in the sun No, hundred and you know two hundred degrees and he's riding a monarch bike for forty minutes after a game and they're like mm-hmm. they just they just it's unheard of you know he's a he's a he, you know it's kind of funny because I think he would admit it that You know, similar to Duncan Keith, because Duncan Keith, I've heard some things that he said that he, you know, he's not the most skilled player, and but you know his compete level, his IQ, you know, his willingness to battle and not be afraid of anybody. I mean, they've kind of have very similar characteristics. I never played with Duncan, but having played with Chris, I see a lot of similarities in those two players. Obviously, one's a righty, one's a lefty, but you know, Duncan can play forty minutes a game same way like he just doesn't get tired and and it wasn't like these guys don't work these guys yeah. are working it's not you know Nicholas Lidstrom and he's one of the best defensemen in the history of the game he was just so much smarter than everybody he just moved into areas made a pass and could play fi- play 60 minutes you know it's just a totally different mentality but you know all these great players they have they have intangibles that others just don't i mean obviously Connor McDavid you know, is on another level in terms of skill sets. And, but the kind of the old school players are the guys, you know, let I me mean, look at today. A lot of the guys are GMs and you know, they're, they're, you know, Craig Berube, who, you know, was a fighter in my time. I mean, he, all he does is expect hard work from his players. And, you know, I feel badly for, you know, Mike O who was, had the same group of players and, I don't know what his mindset is when he looks and says, well, what didn't I do that Craig Berube took the same team I had that we couldn't win a game to the Stanley cup championship. And, you know, sometimes it's just a, a mindset, a, an expectation, a culture. I know we use that word at, at Gelsticks a lot. And I think that's truly it. Like, I mean, I think today there's a lot of players who, you know, say, I say this, you know, just don't get it. They don't understand the work ethic and what it takes to be a pro. And I try and teach that. I've really tried to do that, especially the last two years with the a major and uh, U16 level is, you know, really ready to kind of teach these kids. Like, you know, we might give you an explanation while you're not playing, but the next guy, he might not care. He might not know you personally. He might not know. He might get in your grill and all of a sudden you you fold like a tent. Well, we knew your personality and we were able to manage that. And, and like, you know, to my point about Joel, I mean, Joel was one of my best coaches just because, you know, what if Doug Wade or Keith kachuk or or these guys weren't playing the way he wanted them to, he didn't play them. Patrick Kane, talk about the Hawks, like Jonathan Taves. There's an, there was an expectation of those guys. And if they didn't do it, he didn't play them. And I think that's, there's a lot to be said for, for, for showing that ability to, to really, really manage your superstars. Because really, in the end, I mean, not, there's so many baseball, like I think about baseball and like the Yankees and the Red Sox and these guys, everybody's making 25, 30 million. I mean, what are you doing as a coach? A lot of it is managing the egos. And that's, that's not easy these days. So I give those guys a lot of credit.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. And I think that's huge advice for youth hockey players, just the idea of like what it actually takes to, to be a professional hockey player, college hockey player. And it's different for everyone because I mean, obviously not everybody's riding the bike in the sauna for two hours just to, to play at the level that they need to play at. But, um, but I think, I think you're right. It's just the mindset of what it takes. And that could look differently, but the mindset is still there. And, um, Obviously, that's a hard thing to coach, and I know you've you focused on that the last couple of years to help kids develop and get better, but what would you say to other youth hockey coaches that didn't, you know, have the honor to play in the NHL um, that are just, you know, maybe they are just a parent or maybe, uh, you know, they, they played on their high school team in Minnesota, but what, what kind of advice would you give to those youth hockey coaches and just how to help these kids? Get to their goals.
3: I think. I think the. I think a lot of successful coaches are just great communicators. And I think in today's, you know, millennials, whatever you want to call it, there's a. I just think the coaches fail when one, the biggest key for me, would be honesty. You know, explain to a kid why they're not in situations explain to a parent maybe they don't want to hear it but you know i think i think when parents are not educated and they don't know the game of hockey and they're wondering why little johnny's not on the power play and wondering why the other kids getting more ice time i you know i th- i think there's i think an expectation needs to be set at the beginning of the season because normally the normally the teams that have success Are the ones where the players know what the expectation of the coach is, and if they don't do it, they're not. This isn't. This is what's going to happen from that. And Mm -hmm. you know, it really, I mean, if you're talking an elite coach, which you know, if you're a volunteer coach in house league, you know, just make it fun. You know, make it. You know, make sure that they have fun when they come to the rink. But at the elite level, it really just becomes where you have to know your players because it's so competitive as a parent when you're spending. $15,000 Fifteen to $30,000 for your kid to play youth hockey. You, you want the best for them. You know, there's $240,000 scholarships out there for college hockey. And sometimes the parents get a little bit nutty, including myself at times. I'm not going <laughs> to sugarcoat it. Um, I might have more knowledge than most, but you know, maybe that's part of it. Maybe I know too much and, and maybe it bothers me more than others because I know I sat there, I watched, I saw players, you know, be given things that they maybe shouldn't have been given. And I've learned that way that, you know, the kids have to earn it all. I I think today, I think everybody expects everything to be given to them. And that's, that's something that I think most former players, if you get them in a room, will tell you like, that's the biggest change to young kids is I just don't know if, they just don't know what it's like to deal with adversity. Whereas my thought is if you don't have any adversity as a youth player, it's really, really difficult unless you're an elite elite player to succeed because you don't know how to handle that kick in the teeth. You don't know how to deal with a coach sitting you on the bench and not explaining to you why he's not playing you. So I think there's a lot to be said for communication, but also I think expectations, setting expectations in August or September really help because you could say to the kid you remember what I told you you could say to the parent you remember what I told you instead of it being you know a, a vague conversation of well this might happen if you do this or this might happen if you do that and you know those are the things that I think are very very important for for young coaches especially ones who you know I have so many conversations like I talked to Barrett Jackman who's a former teammate of mine on the blues a couple about a month ago and he's coaching you know the 2009 junior blues and like or amateur blues rather or triple A blues, whatever they're called. And I said to them, I'm like, are you sure you're ready for this? Because it is really intense and it's not easy sometimes to deal with the with the parents. So
0: yeah, well I think I think you're exactly right. And I think there's a couple of huge takeaways for the um for coaches out there you know, setting the expectations at the beginning of the season, I think, is imperative. Like, I think every coach should be doing that at every level, no matter what, what, what they're coaching. I also, I'll take it a step further too, and I'd recommend that uh, you know, coaches would could potentially like keep those lines of communication throughout the season, even if it's not on a daily basis or after every practice or game. But you know, in my experience, when I've been coaching, I've found success with doing a like a mid season meet up and a pre playoff meet up too to kind of set the expectations, like mid-season readdress what you did at the beginning of the season, keep everybody on track, remind it. And then before playoffs, like some people lose their minds when it comes to playoffs. Like, readdress that again and say, this is the game plan. This is what we're doing. This is our goals and our intentions. And just make sure everybody's on the same page. I think you can, you can squash a lot of problems um, at the youth hockey level when, when that line of communication is open. And I think, I think that advice for kids of, of being able to deal with adversity is critical. I mean, you get, I see kids that at all levels that just don't know how to deal with it. And, like, how are they going to be adults after that? Like in the workforce, if they can't deal with a coach, you know, being a little bit upset with them or, or a little bit of things not going their way. I mean, I think that's the game is a big teacher for life. And that's, it's a critical piece of, of coaching youth hockey is helping set people up for success in, in life after hockey. So I think that's a huge point you made. Um. Let me switch gears here on you real quick. Uh, let's jump into the listener questions. So when we do this, we 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 let our, our followers know that who we're going to have on. We took a couple questions from people that are going to be listening. So one of the first one here comes from uh, uh, Instagram from at Darwin underscore Dad. He asks, uh, "Who has uh, who you play with let's See who has played with that got the most out of what they had." Ie, a player that's just worked themselves into the pros and wasn't really born with a special talent.
3: Um,
1: Other than the guy who walked on to Clarkson.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that's, um <laughs> You know what? I think I think there's a lot of like, you know, you hear about a lot of these stories of, you know, these guys that play and they you know, they don't come out of mainstream. The the one I I, can't, I don't know if there's one in particular, but I think. I think, from a position perspective, I would I would say that goalies, like goalies are, because it's hard for me to even think about it at this point. Who the one player would be? It might come to me when I think about it after. But like when, when you really look at goalies and the the timetable and the the development of goalies, like like I talked about the Blues before. The you know Bennington was essentially. He was in Boston's farm system or maybe he was with St. Louis he got shipped to Providence because they didn't have room for him in, in maybe in Chicago or whatever their farm team was, and then he comes back and like he, he leads them to a Stanley Cup like goalies are goalies would you know i can't I know who it is, but I mean even Eddie Belfour, you know when I played with him, I mean Jeff Hackett, I, mean, I played some with some great goalies I mean, but none of them were like this like you know Eddie was the hardest working. Player I've ever played with, forward, skater, or goalie, Eddie Belfour would literally stay on the ice hours after practice, hours. Shoot on me, shoot on. Me. Like those, you know, and that's what I'm saying. So the the work ethic is something that these guys, that the average player at a young age group level doesn't even they don't know what it takes. They just don't. So I don't. Know, I mean, in, I could probably think about it, but right at the top of my head, I can't think of any. I mean. You know, a guy like Pavel Datsuk, who was like, ai mean, an eighth-round pick or something like that. Like, those are the guys, like, but that's just good scouting. You know, Kenny Holland found these guys. Like, if you look at Zetterberg and some of these guys that they stole in the draft, and these guys are like, how could no one see that?
1: As we kind of wrap up here and close – uh, we kind of just ask for some closing thoughts, or just anything you want anybody to hear. And, and before you do that, uh, make sure if you want to talk about your Super Series AAA that we know you got going uh, there in Chicago and and what what all that's about.
3: Yeah, so Super Series AAA is a uh, is a tournament slash showcase business. We run tournaments all over North America from September till the end of June this year. We're you know we're not sure when our events are going to start in the spring and summer, but that's kind of a, that's just our typical, we run events in Boston, Toronto, uh, Florida, Vegas, Nashville, you know, Michigan State, Michigan, Notre Dame, uh, Western Michigan, we have a series of events. So, you know, we get a lot of youth teams from all over the, all over the continent that come to our events. And that's, that's kind of my main, uh, my main business. And we've had a lot of success every year. You know, there's a ton of guys that play in our showcases who get drafted and you know, USHL, OHL, NHL. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun over the years, especially the last, this is going to be our eighth year coming up and and we built a good brand and, and, you know, hopefully that continues as, uh, you know, hockey gets started again.
1: Yeah. It's kind of a weird time. Um, just when all that stuff's going to happen, but yeah, for sure. Check that out and we'll, we'll post all that information in the show notes and, and tag you super series and stuff on that. So people can find that if they're interested, especially if they're in those areas, because, the brand that you guys have built is is something that's definitely worth checking out and being a part of. So awesome that you're making the hockey world better. And that's what we're all about here. Something that we love to do with our guests is just at the end of this before Kamer gives you a thank you, but uh, just give us a nice little, let's go.
3: Like how do I compare to Lowndes? And I don't have the same personality. I don't, I don't have I the, they don't have the new England accent either.
1: No one's getting that one. Yeah
0: we're, yeah, we're not all blessed with that. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Let's go! Let's all go. Right. Awesome. Steve Dubinsky, thank you for joining us here on the Let's Go Hockey podcast. It was awesome catching up with you, hearing more about your story and your path and, and your thoughts on hockey development. We, we truly appreciate giving back to the game through your – super Series triple a and and just extending some advice to young coaches and players out there so thanks for joining us uh we really appreciate the time and uh, hope we can catch up again soon thank you
3: yeah appreciate your time guys thank you
0: a huge thank you to steve dubinsky for joining us on the podcast today it was awesome talking to a player that's played such a long career at the highest level and is involved in the game day to day uh, we really appreciate you having it on the podcast today. I thought you had some valuable insights to share to the listeners. And uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to dive into some of the details a little bit more the next time we get a chance to talk to Steve. But, uh, you know, check out his Super Series AAA. I know that's, uh, that's a huge, huge circuit across the U.S. for players to get seen and, and have some top-level competition. So Super Series AAA, check that out. Uh, Danny, why don't you get us going with the three stars of the night?
1: Yes, three stars of the night. Number three, uh, third star, just his advice for youth hockey players. And, you know, any time that somebody who's played in the National Hockey League is giving you advice, you just listen and you learn and you take it all in. So um, definitely go back and re-listen to that part when he talks about that because he dives into it and it's something that all players should listen to. And then second star of the night is just work ethic and how he talked about Chris Chelios and how this guy would – ride a bike in the sauna um for hours cranked cranked heat and um just so he could play at the level he wanted to play at and just so he could play the amount of minutes that chris chelios played and coach i know you love that part being a blackhawks guy and um i see him more as a red wing but that's (laughs) all right um so those are my biggest biggest takeaways what uh what do you what do you have for our first star
0: of the night so, first start of the night, I was going back and forth a little bit. He touched on a lot of great coaching, uh, develop, player development, and coaching details and things like that. But, like you said before, I'm, I'm a Blackhawks guy. So, his story about Ed Belfour and his crazy work ethic and how he would stay on the ice at college at, at UND, stay on the ice for like, a, you know, after practice is over and take more shots and never wanted to stop practicing. I mean, the guy's a legend, and, you know, you don't become a legend by just showing up i think that's a huge takeaway is that these guys that are household names in the hockey community and you know future future hall of famers are already current hall of famers these guys do the thing the little things extra that the other guys aren't willing to do and they put in the work that other players aren't willing to put in just so they can succeed at the current level that they're at and reach the next level so i think that's a huge takeaway and not only that, but it's just cool to hear how what a psycho work ethic both those guys, Chelios yeah. and Alpha had, right? So with that, let's let's close up shop here. If you're listening, you like what you hear, give it a like, give it a subscribe, tell your, your friends, tell your teammates, pass it along. Danny, you got anything else to add here?
1: No, that's it. Um, thank you, everybody. And let's go.
2: All right, let's go. Another episode of the Let's Go Hockey Podcast. This is producer Vinny here to close out the show with you. Thanks again to Steve Dubinsky for coming on the podcast. That was an awesome interview, and we really hope everybody out there enjoyed it. We have to make sure that we give Steve's son Aiden a massive shout-out. Aiden Dubinsky was drafted in the USHL by the Omaha Lancers shortly after we recorded this. So congratulations, Aiden and Steve and the whole Dubinsky family. From everybody here at the Let's Go Hockey podcast, congrats to Aiden. We look forward to seeing where you go from here, man. We want to remind our listeners to support our sponsors, HockeyWolf.com. Make sure you're supporting Hockey Wolf. Go visit their website today, Hockey and Lacrosse. That's HockeyWolf.com. Thank you so much to them. And finally, Gelstick Sports gel sticks are weighted training aids for hockey lacrosse and golf they are two and a half times heavier than standard sticks or shafts meaning you'll maximize every training session with a gel sticks so visit their website that's gel com. because we've teamed up with them to give you 20 percent off your next order visit the website and use promo code let's go at checkout that's l-e-t-s-g-o at checkout You'll get 20% off anything you order in the store. So visit them today and get yourself a gel stick and start training different. And that's going to do it for another week of the Let's Go Hockey podcast. Thank you for listening. If you haven't hit subscribe already, please make sure you do so because we love that you guys are out there. Without you, we wouldn't be doing the show. So thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.